reading from Ecclesiastes is our scripture, uh, our sermon text for today. It's from Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Hi again. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. If you want to turn there, it's on page 659 in your pew Bibles. Don't you just love how during the summer we have these, like, nice light and fruity sermon series on, you know, basically just like a beach read, um, really straightforward and easy to understand books like this, right? Yeah, me too. Um, I'm happy to continue in that, you know, happy, um, bubbly spirit today. Uh, so like I said, we're going to be looking at, at Ecclesiastes 5. Um, so Ecclesiastes, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting book because it's a wisdom book. But if you read other wisdom books like Proverbs and then you go to Ecclesiastes, you're going to, you know, you're going to get some whiplash going on. Because Proverbs um, and other, you know, wisdom books like Proverbs is really telling you, you know, if, if you do X and things are working how they should, then you'll get Y. Um, if you, uh, if society's functioning how it should, you know, um, live wisely and generally it's going to work out for you. Ecclesiastes is kind of the flip side of that. What happens when the fallenness of the world rears its ugly head? And things aren't working like they should. Society's just not working. It's unjust. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've watched Stranger Things, but in Stranger Things there's this like other realm called the Upside Down. And the Upside Down is basically just everything in the normal world, but it's worse. It's crooked. It's kind of almost demonic, right? Um, we're looking at the same things as Proverbs does, but on the flip side. What if it doesn't work? Proverbs says, What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, Yeah, well, I've seen the wicked prosper. Seen that a lot. I've seen the righteous fail. And even when the righteous do win, what's the point? They're both going to die. 
They're both going to die in the same way, and they'll get buried right next to each other. Proverbs says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The preacher says, Yeah, well, not always. And even if it does work out like that, who cares? Work is painful. And then you just give your stuff to somebody else, and who knows what they're going to do with it. Right? It's what we've heard about the past couple weeks. It's vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. The preacher gives little kind of like incremental answers to the vanity, right? And that's what Mike and Dave have talked about over the last two weeks. But overall, the preacher's going through the crookedness and the vanity of everything under the sun. Work, relationships, pleasure, riches, wisdom, right? The justice system, power, it's all crooked. It's all vanity. And then we come to chapter 5, and maybe your eyes glance over this, and maybe a, you know an Old Testament um, Jewish person's eyes would be glancing over this, and you see the words, house of God, the house of God, right? And maybe you think, maybe if you're, especially if you're like a, you know, more positive person generally, maybe you think, oh, well, you know, he's, he's just spent all this time talking about all of the crookedness out there, all the fallenness out there, all the vanity, it's all out there. And once we step into the church, that's where things kind of work out how they should. That's where we can get a break from all that and kind of kick our shoes off and experience what life is really supposed to be like, right? And of course, unfortunately, you'd be wrong. The vanity and crookedness we find in every other part of life that the preacher has talked about, we find in here. He says, guard your steps. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And I think this has a special effect here because it's these aren't just the words of the preacher, right? I mean, we believe that these are breathed out and watched over by God. It kind of sounds like, you know, if I, if I invite you, and for some of you have, you know, unfortunately experienced this in real life, if, if I'm like about to give you a ride, you know, um, and we're walking to my car, I kind of like power walk up to it a little bit, and then I'll, you know, before you get in, I'll kind of like dig my head in and kind of like throw some stuff around and, kind of to start to clean out some of the stuff in my car and throw some trash out and all of this stuff. Um, and, you know, it's it, it just kind of like, uh, you know, just a warning, really messy in there. Really in me- really messy in there. Got some, you know, moldy banana peels, broken Tupac CDs, um, coffee from last week, you know. Watch your butt because there's, like, Tupperware from the Obama administration in there. Um, and all of this stuff. And it, it's kind of like, that. that's almost what, the preacher sounds like here um, that, that God is saying, my house is pretty messy. You might want to guard your steps when you walk in there. But it's not messy because, you know, it's not messy in the way I'm messy. It's messy because of you. It's messy because of me. It's messy because we are broken and fallen and sinful people. And we're hypocrites when we come into the church. It's crooked because of hypocrisy. And specifically, in this text, we're going to be talking about hypocrisy in worship. We're going to be asking, what do we do with that? The church is full of hypocrisy. What do we do with that? We're going to look at two ways to answer that this morning. Um, So Jesus says in in Matthew 7, uh, most of you have heard this before, he says, you hypocrite. 
First take the log out of your own eye and then remove the speck. So today we're going to look at our hypocrisy first. What do we do with our hypocrisy? What does the text tell us to do with that? We're going to take the log out of our eye and then how do we deal with the hurt from hypocrisy in general? Especially as like an apologetic issue. Like that's a big issue for people right now. It's church hurt. What happens when the church doesn't act like the church? What do we do with that? So, all right. First, first kind of answer we're, we're going to look at today. Um, look with me at verse 1. So the preacher says, To draw near, and this is after the sentence I just read, To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So the first reason that we see to guard our steps, kind of watch, watch your feet when you're, when you're walking into the church, is there's foolish worship going on. There's foolish worship going on. So, so foolish that some of them didn't even know they were doing it, right? There's like an extra level of foolishness when you don't even know that you're being foolish. They were claiming to be God worshipers while they were offering evil worship. He calls it evil. Even though they don't know that they're doing it, they're still responsible for it. It's, it's evil. It's foolish. The preacher goes on to describe what that looks like. So look with me in verse 2. He says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So part of the problem here is that they're wordy. They like to talk. They talk too much. They talk too quickly. They talk too foolishly. And it's pretty amazing that, like, whenever you look at any of the wisdom literature, like the books that are kind of like in the wisdom genre of scripture that all almost all of them deal a lot with talking with words i tend to think that you know i mean I, honestly i i talk a lot sometimes i don't know if you guys know this um the youth definitely know this um i i don't think of it as that big a deal but god does and it's dealt with in the in the wisdom literature like proverbs extensively it's also dealt with in James, which is like the New Testament wisdom book. Um, James underscores the importance of the tongue, and he says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide the whole bodies as well. Look at the ships. Though they are so large and they're driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse the people who are made in the likeness of God. Some hypocrisy he's talking about there. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. An untamed tongue leads to hypocritical living, we see in James. So the preacher here paints this picture of a supposed worshiper who's stepping into God's house. In this case, you know, I, I mean, his, his direct application here is the temple. That's what he's talking about here, the temple. Um, and he's got a lot of this, this foolish worshiper. He's got a lot of ideas, right? He's walking in with a lot of ideas, a lot going on in there. And he's going to tell them to God in the assembly. He's come to let others let God know what's on his mind. He doesn't want to listen. It's not what he's there for, or she. 
The preacher draws an interesting contrast between offering the sacrifice of fools and drawing near to listen. To come to God with many words, recklessly, carelessly, thoughtlessly, is kind of a way of keeping God at arm's length, right? If you don't have to listen, if you just can talk the whole time, you don't have to surrender, you don't have to deal with what God has for you. T.S. Eliot, um, the famous poet and author, he was born just a couple miles that way, I think, um, puts it like this in one of his poetry collections. Endless invention, endless experiment, brings notions, or sorry, brings knowledge of motion, but not of stillness, knowledge of speech, but not of silence, knowledge of words, and ignorance of the word. If you're using a lot of words, if you have all of this motion of words going on, then you're going to be ignorant of the word because you're not listening. They're moving so fast that they're unable to listen. They're ignorant of God's word. You don't have to surrender. You don't have to lay yourself down for anything if you're always acting, moving, talking. It's a hypocritical way of looking like you're worshiping while actually carrying on a project of self-worship. Really, anything can become that for us, right? I mean, when we come in here and we can just go through the motions can just talk, can just sing, and then we can go home, maybe pick up some lunch on the way, right? It's dangerous. Watch your step. Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you do pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. But the, so, so the preacher here doesn't just address the tongue. He says it's a hasty heart that speaks hasty words. It's a heart that doesn't acknowledge God as God. So in other parts of the Old Testament, it says that God is both in heaven and on earth. It's more about, um, so this is more about who he is. He is creator. We are creation. He is God, and we are super very much not God, right? But when we step into the house of God, and we do the speaking, we do all the acting, we do all the talking, we're keeping God's at arms, God at arm's length. That's exactly what we're saying. When we make the worship all about us, that's exactly what we're saying. When we make the worship just going through the motions, that's exactly what we're saying. This is my house. I'll do what I want here. So how do we fight the hypocrisy within our, ourselves here? Um, I think the answer, you know, that the, that the preacher points to here in, in saying that um, it, it's a result of a, a rash, a hasty heart, is that we kill it at that root, our hearts. In a passage where he's railing against the hypocritical religious men of the day, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If the heart's full of hurried, anxious, prideful, unthoughtful haste, that's going to spill out into the words in the church. Um, the early church father and um, theologian who had a lot of words, um, named Augustine, um, in the third century, he was an African um, church father. And he wrote a whole huge, dense book on the Trinity called On the Trinity. They didn't get cute with uh, titles back then. It reads nothing like his personal confessions, if you've ever heard from that, where it's just like basically a prayer. Like it's super dense, super theological. Um, but at the end of it, he gives a little insight into his own heart struggle um, with his many words and with his never-ending 
thoughts that are running through his head. Um, and, and I think he would say, therefore, his, his heart as well. Um, listen to this. I, I think it's a cool prayer. He says, Deliver me, my God, from speaking, from much speaking which I suffer inwardly in my soul. From much speaking which I suffer inwardly in my soul, which is so wretched in your sight and flies to your mercy for refuge. My thoughts aren't silent even when my voice is. And of course, even if I thought nothing but what is pleasing to you, I would not ask you to deliver me from this much speaking. But many of my thoughts are the kind which you know are the thoughts of men and are vain. Grant me not to consent to them. Even if they delight me, grant that I might reject them and not linger over them in a kind of daze. Let them not so prevail over me that any action of mine proceeds from them so that he doesn't actually speak them. But let my judgment at least be preserved from them and my conscience with you to preserve me. With Augustine, we take our wordy, restless, vain thoughts in our heart to God. We surrender to surrender those to him in an act of truly worshipful service. I don't know if you struggle with that, if just like not being able to turn off your brain, but um, turn off all of the thoughts that are just roaming around in there but that's that's the root of what we're talking about here of the of the wordy kind of um foolish worship um i i i i think we we need more practice of this of surrendering that to the lord like augustine models for us there so the preacher moves on in verse four to a specific example of uh what hypocritical talk is making vows so if you want to read with me in verse four when you vow a vow to god do not delay in paying it For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you to sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. So in the Old Testament, vows were kind of done either as a part of the corporate worship service in God's house or to get some kind of um, blessing as a result of um, the vow from God, or um, as a as a kind of deal in certain tough situations, right? Like when um, Hannah in the Old Testament was childless, she was she was trying to get pregnant. She just couldn't. She made a vow to God, right? That if, God, if you bless me with a child, then I will dedicate that child to you in the house of God in the temple. And that's what she did with Samuel. Um, she dedicated Samuel um, when the Lord blessed him to her. Um, she dedicated him to the to the temple, and today, um, you know, we we don't think in terms of vows a lot, um, but it's still very similar, right? We have wedding vows before God. Um, parents up here, right over there, take vows at baptism, um, and as you know, the youth and kids director, I'm also going to just toss it out there that we make vows as a church to help them, you know, in assisting their kids in discipleship. Um, you know, just a plug that we're getting children's ministry going again so we need people to you know step up on that um just saying we make vows at church membership we make vows at church offices you know that's something we're we're doing right now as well um in that process and uh even though we may not place as big of an emphasis on private vows made in the um corporate worship of of the church um you know i i I know i've made I've, i've i've made little Probably silly, probably foolish, you know, trying to bargain with God sometimes. Um, promises or deals or oaths or vows to God. Um, and the preacher says, 
God takes words very, very seriously, and so should you. Do what you say you will. Be a man or be a woman of your word. Again, Jesus meets the preacher here in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you can't even make one hair white or black. All you need is to simply say yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. He's saying, don't, don't multiply words. Don't try to tie your promise to anything else, right? Don't let your tongue lead you into sin. The messenger here um, in verse, uh, what verse is that? Is that verse 5? Um, the messenger here probably refers to the priest or another temple worker acting for the priest, imploring any vows to be made into the house of God or, or in the house of God to be fulfilled. God takes words seriously. God is angered by hypocrisy. Um, I, I want to dwell there a little bit. That'll be a bigger point um, later. But God is angered by the hypocrisy here. He's angered by the hypocrisy of our words. If you look at verse 7, he says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. There's vanity in the church. He's saying there's vanity here. But God is the one you must fear. So even though there's kind of a, a little threat before this, right, that God would, um, in, in verse 6, he says he would, you know, destroy the work of their of their hands um, in judgment, um, even though there, there is that, primarily what fear means here is not, you know, we're scared of God. We're scared of a judge. Um, approximately two children ago, Tara and I took kind of an impromptu, sleep in gas stations and um, and uh, deserts and stuff on the way to California. We took a road trip to California, and we stopped at the Grand Canyon. And when you stand, I don't know if you've been there, but if you stand kind of at the rim of the Grand Canyon and you have a pulse, you'll be immediately overwhelmed by the just the massive landscape in front of you, the awe-striking depth of the, you know, just straight mile um, that the Grand Canyon goes down. Um, just the way that, you know, you can look at it and still not be able to take all of it in at once. It kind of is just so big and so hard to comprehend that there is a little bit of fear and reverence there, right? I mean, <laughs> you take one wrong step in the wrong place and it could end badly for you. And I think that's the best description I've come across for what the fear of God actually means. It means standing before the reality of God and seeing him for who he truly is and who you are in light of that. It means seeing him for who he is and all of his glory and power and his demand for your worship. Understanding who you are to him as well. I wonder for, for, for most of us how much of our hypocrisy is just rooted in a wrong view of God. How it's so easy to reduce God to being kind of a teddy bearish, needy best friend or crush that's just begging for you to love him. There's a tension in scripture that we have to keep between God as, you know, loving and tender father and God as mighty and omnipotent Lord over all of our lives. 
right? Like in the Lord's Prayer, we call him our Father, but then that's kind of balanced or intention with in heaven. He is our Father, but he's also in heaven. And like Ecclesiastes said, he's in heaven, we're on earth. God doesn't, um, yeah, hypocrites don't fear God like this in their hearts. They say, God, you know, God doesn't see us. Or maybe God, God's just so intangible, I can't feel him, so it doesn't really matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I, my words don't match up and with my actions or my beliefs. My words don't match up with my beliefs or, um, you know, God is just so loving and forgiving. It doesn't matter if we say one thing and then we say or do another thing. To keep ourselves from this hypocrisy, we stare in self-revelation, at God's self-revelation in Scripture, at the Grand Canyon God who exposes our hypocritical vanities. I do want to pivot a little bit here. Um, that, that was kind of how we kill our hypocrisy. We admit when we're having these, these thoughts like hasty hearts that lead to hasty words before God. And we surrender that to him. And we also come to him, um, seeing him for who he truly is in scripture and correcting our view of who he is so that um, that will do away with our hypocrisy as well, where, where we can place, okay, this is, this is who I really am. I don't have to put on a mask, right? Um, so I want to pivot here and move to our kind of second way of looking at and dealing with the hypocrisy of the church under the sun. And I, since it is kind of a, a bigger pivot, I do want to pray a short prayer here to help us. I know it's usually done at the beginning or the end, but I want to have a prayer right here. So, um, God, I, I pray um, that you would help us to um, come face to face with ourselves by really coming face to face with you, um, seeing who you are, God. Expose our hypocrisy. Lord, help us to take the log out of our own eye. Help us to repent of, of where we've fallen in this, God. Um, Lord, and, and help us turn to the watching world um, and come to them in love and understanding. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, the poet Cheslaw Malaz, probably butchered that, but um, he wrote to the well-known monk Thomas Merton, um, and they're talking about their families, and he said that he didn't want his sons to go to church because he did not want to make atheists out of him, out of them. It's a direct quote. He did not want to make atheists out of them. But that statement might seem a little bit jarring at first. We're seeing more and more people today that are struggling with this. Um, more and more people today saying that the reason for leaving the church or just not believing at all is the hypocrisy and the hurt caused by the church and by church people. While there are always underlying things, you know, and multiple reasons people have for not believing, um, I'd say that from what I've seen, especially in Generation Z and my own um, generation, uh, millennial generation, the chasm between what the church claims to be and what it acts like um, and sometimes out of that, what it, you know, the, the, the hurtful words that are said are the biggest reason that many of the friends I know, um, and a lot of people, according to the Pew Research Center, are rejecting Jesus altogether or leaving the church. Um, when the hypocrisy of Christians hits home, um, in recent years that's been ch- coined church hurt. I don't know if any of you have kind of heard that language, but church hurt. Um, when you're hurt by, by people in the church, when you're hurt by the hypocrisy 
the church. I know many of us have experienced that to one degree or another. I don't think you can be in the church for a super long time without experiencing some um, Christian, some church person wronging you in some way, speaking out against you in some way, sinning against you by word or by deed in some way. One of my earliest memories of church involves the pastor of the church that I grew up in committing adultery and the church angrily split over how do we, how do we handle this? How do we process this? Um, and I was, you know, I was maybe, I don't know, six. It's early elementary school and I was trying to process whatever amount of that was told to me as I never saw many of my, you know, friends that I had at, you know, three, four, five, six that I grew up knowing. Some of you may have been hurt worse um, and have been abused in some way by the church or by those supposedly representing the church, whether that was spiritual or verbal or physical. And that can create crises of faith, right? It's one of the main reasons why people give for leaving the church or staying away from it. When people give this as a reason for unbelief, I've, I've seen two main arguments against that, and I've used both of these myself as well. Um, the first one is... Uh, you know, well, try to find someone without immorality and harmful speech and hypocrisy. If you're saying, you know, the church is full of hypocrites and so I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, like, community is a human need, right? So if you go to any other community, you're going to find brokenness there as well, right? People are going to make mistakes. People are going to do immoral, bad things against you. They're going to say bad things about you no matter where you go, right? Whether that's social clubs or workout programs or mom groups or message boards or Instagram, you won't get away from the crookedness of life under the sun. Herman Melville um, said in one of his poems, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. Everybody, Presbyterians and pagans alike. Second thing, second kind of argument against, you know, the church is full of hypocrites, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, is, but it's about Jesus, right? It's about Jesus. Jesus isn't the church. Look to Jesus. Even if his followers do X, Y, and Z, even if everyone is sinning against you, it's, it's, it's not about them. It's about Jesus. It's about God. Right? And those are true. Those are good arguments. Those are true arguments. I've used those. I think we should say them. I think we should hammer them home. But those are kind of my knee-jerk reactions, right? Those are my, you know, if somebody says, I don't, you know, I've seen you Christians. I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Those are my, you know, go-to, right? But I think that that can skip over the pain that people sometimes feel from the church. There's a particular pain from church hypocrisy because of how the church is supposed to function. If Scripture calls us the body of Christ, that we are, you know, the actual body of Christ here on earth, if we are the vehicle that God is using to help redeem the world and build the kingdom, it's tough. It's tough when what that's supposed to be is now hurting people, sinning against people, acting hypocritically. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, actually makes the case in several points that 
to, to do something in, in worship, to do something worshipful like confession to one another. He says when you confess something to another brother or sister in the faith, that's like you're actually confessing it to God. That those people are, are actually standing. Your community is the physical manifestation. It's the way that God actually reaches you and sanctifies you and, and moves you and grows you. So when that community is harmful, when that community is hypocritical, it hurts all the more. And it leads people to think, well, what does God look like if they look like this? I'm thinking that, you know, if, if we just knee-jerk past the hurt here, we miss an even more basic point. God identifies and he cares and he's angry about hypocrisy. He's angry when the church sins. The preacher isn't naive here, Right? I mean, look back at verse 1. Guard your steps when you walk into the household of God. Preacher's not being naive about church. He's not being happy-go-lucky here. He's seeing all the hurt. He's sitting in it. These are the words of God, right? Pastor and professor Zach Eswine um, makes this point really well in his book, Recovering Eden, about this book of Ecclesiastes. He says, Consequently, Instead of haranguing neighbors to get to church or belittling their pain and whitewashing bad church experiences, wisdom beckons us to honesty, to empathy, to human truth-telling. Yes, we can say with a sigh, the church can wound. We can go further and admit, sometimes the grandest fools and those wearing Sunday clothes and carrying Bibles are the grandest fools. Sometimes I've been one, we confess and we repent to them. Then with an honest human empathy, we affirm, makes sense. Makes sense that you would feel a little bit skittish about church, the thought of church. And then we gently testify to the grace we ourselves have needed as it relates to the church. We say, I've appreciated a wise man in scripture who cautioned us to watch our steps when we go to church. We offer, you know, somehow, in his caution, he still attended. I'm trying to learn what he meant by that, we conclude. If you ever want to enter this caution and learn with me, I'd welcome that. And with that invitation to our neighbors, we wait and we pray, and by grace we love them. The preacher says, look back at verse 1, the preacher says when, when you go to church, when you go step into the household of God. He doesn't say This is bad. Stop. It's better not to go at all, right? He doesn't say it isn't worth it. Christ's bride is still beautiful to him. By Jesus, I've... I mean, yeah, I've seen bad things in the church. But by Jesus, I've also seen beautiful things in the church. I've seen the forgotten loved. I've seen the chains of addiction fall flat on the floor. I've seen those without blood family given spiritual family... I've seen tears shed in prayer over the hurting. I've seen the light in a person's eyes when the gospel just shines into the darkest of hearts. When they first get it. He says, when, when you go to worship, do it carefully because there are hypocrites here, right? Do it wisely because you have the seeds of that hypocrisy in your own heart. But go. Go to the house of God. 
In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! How will you escape being sentenced to hell? And that was a really sharp question, but it was also a rhetorical question he gave there. But he still chose to answer it anyway. The biggest instance of church hurt and house of God hypocrisy there will ever be in human history, those people who called themselves worshipers of God nailed the Son of God to a cross. If you're struggling with holding on to faith in the midst of hypocrisy, in the midst of church hurt, run to the cross where you can find a God angered enough to crush his only son for it so that he can be with you. And where you can find the final eternal justice and peace of a hurting world, of a hurtless world, sorry, the cross and the empty tomb promise us. They promise us a future with no more hypocrisy from us or from others. If you're struggling with your own hypocrisy, your own rash heart and tongue, run to the cross where Jesus truly paid it all and offers you freedom from your false self through the fear of God, seeing who God really is and who you really are in him. Let me pray. Um, God, we are, almost all of us, herders and hurt. We are hypocrites and we are harmed by hypocrisy in the church. Would you help us to be real with you? Would you help us to take off our masks? Would you help us to, when we step into the church, watch our step? Because in our hearts are the seeds of hypocrisy, wanting to make it about ourselves, wanting to talk, to be seen, wanting to uh, make vows to impress other people, wanting to worship foolishly, whether we know it or not. Help us to guard our steps and help us to love those who have been hurt by the church. Help us to not be afraid, um, to still witness to them and, and show them your truth and and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm still there and I'm repenting, but let me tell you about grace. Help us testify to the grace that you freely give us in the gospel. Amen. Clean up my mess here for... <laughs>